Blog Talk Hello. Radio. Hello and welcome to Authentic Messengers. My name is Katherine Van Wetter and I'll be your host today. Every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, I have been interviewing different authors from our brand new book, Nurse Sparks. All of these interviews will be archived, so if you miss one, you can go to www.blogtalk forward slash authenticmessengers.com. Please also check out our blog talk series with our past book, which was called Life Sparks. Also, please go to our Facebook page, AuthenticMessengers.com, and leave a thumbs up, comment. If you know of anyone who may be interested in being on Authentic Messengers, please know it. Please let us know by going to AuthenticMessengers.com for more information. So today, the name of the radio show is called The Wake Up Calls in Our Lives, How Well Do We Listen?, And I'm very excited to be interviewing Maggie Perrone, who will discuss how the arc of our lives, our experiences, and our response to them shapes and molds us into who we are today. Maggie has had more than 30 years' experience teaching and healing those in difficult emotional, spiritual, and physical situations. She has walked with people in some of life's most critical moments. Along with being a mother of three, an emergency room nurse for most of the last 25 years in a university trauma center and a community hospital in Southern California, she now works as a chemotherapy infusion nurse, counseling those in treatment for all cancers. And Maggie is also the executive director of Genuine Journeys, a company dedicated to creating and facilitating retreats, and workshops to experience and expand the spiritual life. She has taught theology and led many contemplative prayer retreats and journeys to inner self by using many differing prayer methods. She is also a certified labyrinth facilitator through Veritas. Did I pronounce that right? Veritas? Veritas. Thank you, and welcome, Maggie. You have such a a wealth of information, and I noticed I could have gone on and on with all that you've done. would also like to add that you hold a a Master's of Art degree in pastoral ministry from the St. John Seminary in California. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here with you today. Wow, so your your passage of the work you've done in the past, working with people as they go through difficult passages in their own lives, how is it that you got involved in it? Was there something within your own life that called you there, or if you would like to share? Well, you know, I come from a really big family. Um, I have nine brothers and sisters. Actually, I have eight brothers and one sister. And when we were kids, you know, we lived in in the inner city um, of the city that we lived in, and, and not such a great part of the city. Um, but we all were taught that we were all in this together, and everyone had a job, and everyone worked to to support yourself to help the family support you. So I always knew that. Um, this participatory 
uh, exchange between in, in relationship that, that I had some responsibility for my own life. Um, my father put nine children through college without a loan. Um, there was no one that did not uh, have the opportunity to go to college if they chose, and it was actually something that was expected of all of us, and that's one of the reasons that um, we couldn't afford to go uh, out of the place uh, that we were living at the time. So when I chose my field, I knew I had four years of college that I was going to be supported with, and, and I participated in. I worked really hard, saved all my money, gave it all to my dad for tuition, and I had four years, and so I thought, what do I want to do so that when I come out of school, I will be able to support myself and also uh, what speaks to me and in, in who I am and what I would like to do. And so that decision was to go into nursing. My grandmother was a nurse. Um, her husband died uh, when my grandmother was 32 and had three very small children and was seven months pregnant with her fourth. And um, her nursing degree and her nursing practice is what sustained that family um, throughout the 30s and the 40s. So I saw her strength. I saw her dedication. I saw her ingenuity. And I saw that by having this in my back pocket, I would always be okay. And so I went into nursing. Wow. And now you're working in the area of, of doing chemotherapy infusion. Nurse being a right. chemo. That must, so how did, how did you happen to go to work more in the area of oncology or cancer? Well, you know, nursing is an interesting field because, you know, you go in and there is an amazing amount of opportunity for you throughout the course of your career to really grow yourself, develop yourself, um, become aware more of, of what your passion is, of what fits well with you, about what patient population you connect with, and and where your skill set lies. And so I started out on a general med surge floor. I graduated from the University of Michigan. I was 21 years old with a bachelor's degree uh, and went to work. And I started out on a general floor, loved cardiology, uh, went into cardiology, went to the cardiac intensive care unit, started speaking, started really learning, started teaching classes. And then I went into research, and I did research for a while. Um, and I was always intrigued with the emergency department when I was a candy striper at the, at the hospital when I was <laughs> volunteering when I was like 14. I wanted to go to the emergency department, but my mom wouldn't let me because I don't think she wanted me to see all of that. And it always intrigued me. And I was about seven years into my career and doing very well when I had a wake-up call. And there was a real time that I needed to make a decision, and I knew I had to transition out of what my comfort zone was, what I was doing, and I needed to go into something else. And I thought, now is the time to go to the emergency department. And I did. And I loved it. I was good at it. I was a charge nurse uh, in a level one trauma center for 10 years. Um, it 
I was good at it. I it challenged me. I was able to really connect with people. It made me think. There was critical thinking. There was psychosocial teaching. You saw people in the rawest pieces of their lives, and and it gave me a real perspective um, on human beings and and our humanity and our dignity and. You know, it leveled the playing field. When somebody came in with a heart attack, it didn't matter if you were, you know, the mayor of the city or, or, you know, the the guy that helps pick up the garbage. You know, it, your family was just as scared. You were just as scared. Um, and you connected with people on a very raw level. And, and I really honored that in people. And it was a wonderful place for me to learn and grow. And so I did that for 10 years, and then um, my husband got a job in California, and I had to leave my home in Michigan, where I'd grown up my whole life, leave my nine brothers and sisters, and we moved to Southern California. And out there, I was able to be an at-home mom for a few years until circumstances presented when I needed to get a job, and I needed to get a job now. And I walked into a local emergency department and handed in my resume and said, I need a job. And she said, when can you start? So nursing has wow. just been a fabulous, fabulous thing for me. So I went from a level one trauma center, university trauma center, to a small community hospital in a completely different culture, completely different environment. And it was a real transition. But the camaraderie and the family and the relationships of that small hospital uh, and the people that that I met there and worked with and and the patients that came in, it was a whole different perspective, wonderful, except it was an emergency room in Southern California. And, you know, after probably about seven years there, you know, I, I became a single mom. I had most of the financial responsibility for my children. And um, it, it's hard work in the emergency room. You're, you're running, you're working 12, yeah. 13, 14-hour shifts. Um, you're getting people coming in who, you know, are critically ill. You're getting a lot of psychiatric emergencies that come in. You're getting a lot of, of the homeless population and substance abusers and alcoholics coming in. And then you're getting people um, who come in and are, are so frightened and, and demanding and acting out. And you just never know what's going to happen. And um, so a few times, you know, People were out of control, and there's a few different times where, you know, we had to, I was assaulted, and I had knives pulled on me, and at, at one point, I just thought, you know, how much longer can I do this? You know, if I get hurt, yeah. something happens to me, what are my children going to do? Well, in 2004, I was given an opportunity to have a scholarship to go to graduate school. And I had always had a deep, deep love of spirituality and working with people. Uh, I was good at it. I had a, a knack for assessing people and being to touch them where they where they needed to be. And I utilized that all through my nursing career. 
So in California, I had that opportunity, and I took it. So I went back to graduate school on a full scholarship and got a master's degree in theology and philosophy and pastoral ministry. And so I did a lot of pastoral counseling. I did a lot of theological studies. I did a lot of inner spirituality studies. And during that time, I also went up uh, into San Francisco through Veritas, which is the worldwide labyrinth network, and got my facilitator training and then my advanced facilitation training in the labyrinth. And that's when I launched my business, uh, Genuine Journey. So I started developing not only utilizing these skills at work, but also with my preparation in spirituality and pastoral counseling with my master's program, I also learned about the labyrinth and how to utilize that as an contemplative prayer tool. And so I started taking all three parts of of my life and, and putting them together in Genuine Journeys, where I started developing workshops and retreats um, for healthcare providers, for women's groups, for um, church groups, for, you know, just, uh, groups of people who come together um, and do many, many different uh, types of workshops from psychological um, teaching and healing, PTSD and trauma, to the labyrinth, to uh, inner spirituality. So wow. it's all kind of knit together. And I oncology really love that came... you mentioned. Go ahead. Oh, I I really love how you blend the emotional, spiritual, and physical. So many times we hear mind, body, spirit, and leaving out the emotional part, which is such a huge part, especially if that's where a lot of grief has a, has a tendency to hide out in in our emotional body. So it's beautiful that you that you bring together the emotional spiritual physical you were going to say with the oncology to answer your question um there was a particular day and i speak about it in the book when i was assaulted by a patient um pretty severely and she didn't mean to she was you know uh intoxicated suicidal quite um out of her mind and we, you know, were able to contain her. We got her down, but she tr- tried to hang herself in the emergency room. And it was quite a scene, and she really resisted us trying to help her, and I was the one that was first on the scene and, and took the brunt of it. And it's not the first time, but it was one of the most severe times, and I was 48 years old at the time and a single mom of three kids, and I just thought I cannot continue to do this. I, I, it's, it's just getting too much for me. And part of our work, all of us, no matter what our situation in life is, is to really take a look at ourselves and say, who am I saving? And, and, mm-hmm. and who will I save if I'm lost in the process? How much am I giving away? What can I do? You know, we care for the other. We care for our children. We care for our parents. We care for our families. We care for our brothers and sisters. We care for ourselves. We care for our friends. But at a certain point comes down to if I don't really begin to take a time out and figure out how to not only have balance in my life, but how to intuit, how to experience 
my life, how to do some things that are going to feed me, sustain me, and re-energize me and refill me so that I can continue to do the things that I'm really good at, passionate about, uh, that can sustain my relationships and my family and my children and my parents Mm -hmm. and whoever else we have to take care of. And so that was a wake-up call for me. That was the point where I thought I have to do something else. I love the emergency department. It was clear. I have to do something else. And I had no idea what else I was going to do. I'd been in the ER 25 years. And I, you know, opened it to the universe. I sat with it. I didn't necessarily actively do anything. I just started talking a little bit more about it. And a former manager of mine came and said, I've just gotten a job as the head of an oncology clinic, and I'd like you to come. Mm. I had been out of school a couple years. It was seemed like a wonderful thing to get out of the ER. Um, it was going to be a longer commute. It was going to be less money. It was more sane hours. It was a, a wonderful uh, learning environment, but I didn't know anything about oncology. <laughs> But I decided to do something that would help me to fulfill the responsibilities I had and also keep that spark alive in me of a new challenge, a new chapter, something else, not so much physicality in my work, not so much danger in my work. Um, And so I took the job, and that's when I went into oncology. Wow. And I've been in oncology six years now. Yeah, I was wondering as you were speaking earlier what you did for self-care because it seems like a lot of nurses or people who are working in emergency room positions or being EMTs, that there's a lot of adrenaline and there's sometimes self-care goes by the wayside and, and wondered what you did to be able to, what you did to enhance your self-care. Well, that's a a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is really through my work that you begin to see and understand that people have no idea how to care for themselves emotionally Mm -hmm. um, or or spiritually. They have a faith. They have uh, some people have a faith tradition that they rely on a lot, but it is about experiencing it. It's about bringing it inside. It's about utilizing the tools that are available to you, and a lot of people just don't know how. And they'll try for a little while, but it's, you know, there's, it's not a quick fix. You know, it's like a low-carb diet. You can do it for a month and a half, but at some point you got to eat pasta, you know? It's just yeah. not real sustainable yeah. for people. Um, and so it's important for people to understand to start small. And for me, I had the luxury of being steeped in a, in a faith tradition. I'm a Roman Catholic. And I practiced uh, until I got to college, and then I left the faith. And then um, when I got out of college, I was at a point where I just was really needing something, and that's what I fell back on. And so I, of my own choice, went back uh, into my uh, tradition, uh, my familial tradition. 
And so the church and, and my faith tradition has helped sustain me on a certain level. But that comes from the outside, right? Religion, you know, what does the word religion mean? Religio. It is Latin for to bring together, to bind together, you know, legio, like ligaments that help uh, Mm. your knee to keep things stable. But that's an external. Religion gives us an external. The organized religion gives us an external way for us to go to. But it is in the participation that we get the fruits of our faith. And so it was through participating in it, through really delving into what spoke to me and and how it spoke to me. I did an awful lot of reading on inner spirituality, reading different theologians, different perspectives. Um, I would get books that that I could pick up, uh, poetry, uh, prose, um, the Sufi poets, Rumi, Hafiz, uh, are, are, have been my companions for many, many years, um, many different authors and many different faith traditions to just help to, to widen my perspective about the human experience of life, how we all experience life. And it has deepened my faith in my own tradition and also expanded it. And so what I did was began to sort of try out many different things and saw what spoke to me. And so I started a, a, a practice of, of making a very small space in my house. So I had a little altar and a chair in the corner of my bedroom. And I had a very small house in California and three very active children. So that was my space, and I could go in there, and I could sit, and I had a little candle, and I would light it. I would have my books there, and I would just sit. And I would feel out what spoke to me that day. Sometimes I would just drink my coffee in there. Sometimes I'd journal. Sometimes I'd pick up a book of poetry. Sometimes I um, would read a novel, uh, and, and sometimes I would meditate. And so I tried all of these different practices. And what that helped me to do is to look inside myself and to discern what that day I felt I needed to sustain me and then to give myself permission to um, experience that in that way. And it takes a lot of practice to not do things that you think you ought to do and do things that you feel like that's what you need in the moment. So and it I, sounds like I, you really it sounds like you really listened to yourself as you went into the room either to sit and sip coffee or tea or to pull down a roomy book. So it's I think about people who who are in the healthcare, either mental health therapists or nurses, doctors, et cetera, who sometimes stick to one way of doing self-care that can sometimes be beneficial, although there, it can lead to some rigidity and lack of effectiveness. So how did, it, how did it work for you 
in regards to your own personal effectiveness, being able to be so gentle with yourself to go whatever avenue you wanted to go, such as the tea or the pawn. It really took a lot of practice. It took Mm -hmm. for me to begin to say, I don't know what to do with myself. And I didn't do it every single day. You see, you, it, it's important to give yourself permission to always restart, to always remember, to always go back, and to allow yourself to try many different things in many different traditions. Some days, if I just mm-hmm. got outside and went for a walk for half an hour, that was it. You know, I had three busy children. I was a single mom. I had a lot to do. And and what I usually did was try to get up every morning, and I called it my staring at the wall time, and I would have one cup of coffee before I had to leave the house. And that's when I would sit in my chair in that space and, and have my coffee. Um, it's an allowing. I think that, that it's... It, it takes a lot of work, you know. It, it takes uh, giving yourself permission uh, to begin to experience doing what you feel like doing instead of mm-hmm. what you should do, what other people expect you to do, uh, what you have time to do. I mean, there was lots of times where I just wanted to put one more load of laundry in and then I'm going to sit down. There was years that I was going to sit down when? Years. And it really has to be a practice. And I don't care if it's five minutes or ten minutes. Set the timer, you know. But give yourself that time out. Yeah, and, you know, I I was thinking as you were talking what a practice it is of allowing and allowing oneself just to be. If if one doesn't feel like going out and doing the 10,000 steps, then sit and be still and not be, especially I think as women, not to not to be in the space of feeling like you have to, have to, have to, to be achieving all the time. And I'm curious with how, how you practice that allowing, how did that flow out into the work that you did with the folks that you worked with, with your patients, with your clients, with your children for that matter? I think I realized that killing myself, that I was mm-hmm. actually doing so much. I was so exhausted all the time. I was so depleted that I absolutely needed to do something or else I wasn't going to be able to keep going. And quitting was not an option. You know, right. I, I had to. I, I had to keep working. I had to be able to sustain this. I had to educate these children. This was my responsibility. Um, and it is an awareness. It's, it's, mm-hmm. And it, it's something that you have to do for yourself. Um, and I needed a lot of help with it. You know, there were times um, where I would enter therapy. And I didn't have the money to pay for therapy. But I had to go. And it was through that process of working through the frustration, the grief, the letting go, my divorce, my 
children and how am I going to do it and working four and five 12 hour shifts in the emergency department and trying to make soccer games and how am I going to pay for this and how am I going to do that? I mean, I just realized that if I did not sustain myself and feed myself, that mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it at all. And the alternative was, you know, seeing the young people coming into my emergency department, you know, completely embattled. Yeah. You know, alcoholic, wow. drug abuse, anxiety disorders. I just didn't want to end up. And, and I could. I, I could have. Mm-hmm. I saw lots of dysfunction. In, in nurses and doctors and, and healthcare providers and patients alike whose lives were out of control. A lot of dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for your candidness and sharing that. And, and coming to the book of your decision to, to be part of the anthology, what brought you to take the leap to author the chapter? when you've never written for so-called public consumption before? I have had a book in my head for many years, since about 2008, since I graduated with my graduate um, degree. And I've always had a hard time with writing. I I have a lot of ideas. I can speak. I can go in front of people and and get my message across. I'm very effective. And um, in my workshops and in my retreats, people seem to respond really well to the way that I present things and and the sacred space that I create and the tools that I give them and how we practice with them and all of that. But writing was always a challenge for me. And... um, I took a leap of faith um, one year ago and left California and moved back home to Michigan. I sold my house Mm. um, and moved back home so that I could have um, a more sustainable uh, situation and more support um, emotionally and um, mentally and physically. Uh, being back with my family. They wanted me back uh, badly. And my kids were, my last one was in a second year of college, and it was just time. I discerned for two years, sitting in my meditation room, doing all of the things that I just talked about, and I took a leap of faith, and it was time, and I came home. Um, and I was very clear to the universe what, what, I, what I wanted. If I was going to do this, I wanted a little house. I wanted to be in a town. I wanted to be in a specific area in a specific town. I wanted to be within walking distance of downtown. I wanted a lifestyle. If I was going to uproot my life, this is what I wanted. And I wanted the ability to break out and do the things I, I have wanted to do but would not have given myself permission to do for lots of reasons. I was raising kids. I was working three jobs. I was, you know. So when I got here, I couldn't believe I had actually accomplished what I had set out to do two years ago. And I really spent a lot of time discerning how this all came about and and the great graces and mercies and miracles and, and gifts that the universe gave me in order to help me go from California to Michigan. I mean, the the miracles were 
astounding when you really think about it, how, how things happen and what popped up when. And, and, you know, I bought a house that wasn't even on the market to this person knew that person and, and she was thinking about it and I came and it was the house in the perfect location and I didn't have to bid with anybody and the woman loved me and she sold me her house. She liked me. So she, it was like, I got a job it, and the miracles just continued. It was so smooth. And so I begin to really trust in these things that were coming. And I had a spontaneous conversation with uh, my friend Anita Stewart, who I worked with in the emergency department at the hospital in um, Southern California. And she uh, took a leap of faith several years ago and and moved to Bend, Oregon, and she's thriving Mm -hmm. up there. But she didn't know anybody when she moved up there. And so when she found out I had moved and I had done, you know, uprooted myself, which we had talked about me wanting to go home for years, uh, we spoke by phone. And, And I hadn't spoken to her in years. And we spoke by phone, and she said, you know, I'm starting this anthology on Nurse Sparks, and, and would you be interested in, in writing a chapter? And I just took it as as another one of those opportunities that the universe gives us to um, open ourselves up and conquer our fear. I had a real fear of writing. The book I was mentioning is completely outlined, chapters named, Outlines of each chapter have been done for about five years, six years now, and I haven't been able to move any further on it. I think I will when I'm ready, um, mm-hmm. but I think it was a pretty daunting task for me. So to be able to write about my own experience, what I had just been through, how I got here with someone I trusted in a smaller format, I thought, Girlfriend, if you're going to write, now's the time. And so I said, yeah. Yeah, Anita is very inspiring in that way. She's really a wonderful person. Um, How did the process feel for you to write your experiences, which happened in the most difficult periods of your adult life, and then share them openly in your chapter? Well, I've been around the block and I've I've had a, some tough tough things happen uh, to me in my life, and some traumatic things happen. But I have seen people who've had it so much worse. Um, and I don't think my story is unique. I think it's a human story. I think it's it's the fear that that all of us have, the insecurities that all of us have, the wake up calls that all of us have in our lives, and we're too afraid to really look at. And and we feel stuck, and we feel like we don't have choices, and we feel like we have all these have tos. And I think we put up boundaries for ourselves. I caged myself for many many years, and. I was able to finally break free of the cage that I built for myself through this process. And I really wanted to share that, that it is through the sufferings of our lives that we learn the most of who we are. Our sufferings are gifts to us because that's when the rubber meets the road. And opportunities 
that come to us that we never, ever would have ever taken had it not been for this tragic event. I call them sort of left turns in your life, you know, things you never thought would ever happen to you, right? And all of a sudden it does. And then when you get out on the other side, if we are able to open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits, to take the gifts of that suffering instead of denying and shutting down and resenting, it really propels us into a much higher place in our lives. It opens up wisdom. It opens up compassion. It opens up um, our own choice. You know, someone once said to me that our important decisions are discovered, not made. Mm. And that's how we discover things. It's mm-hmm. through living our lives. Maria Rilke is a poet who wrote that it is by sitting with the questions themselves that we live our way into the answer. Mm-hmm. And I that took that as my motto, is that just sitting and, and asking the question and then letting the question sit and let us live our way in the answer, we will come in time if we don't push the river. You know, let the let us flow with the river. Yeah, it's not struggle, struggle straight ahead. It's row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Right. Struggling and suffering is optional many times, though it may not seem like it when one is in the middle of it. I wondered how you came up with the title of your chapter and with you also explaining that, what do you mean by the wake-up calls in our lives? Well, um, I was actually in a conversation with Anita and talking about what I might write about and what was important to me. And I really wanted to write about the arc of my life that brought me full circle back home and how I was able to leave home. I had a beautiful house in a lake neighborhood. I built the house. It was my dream house. I'd only been in it four years when I was uprooted and went to California and had to start all over. I knew no one. And I went to a place and a culture and a climate. It was like landing on Mars, you know, from where I came from. The values were different. Everything was different. The way of life was different. There was nothing familiar to me. And then as that became my way of life, and then the struggles that came while I was out there, and then that process of arcing back home again and making that hugely difficult decision to then uproot my life again to come home to a place that wasn't the place I left. And when I really started thinking about that arc, And what happened to me that led to an experience, that led to a decision, that led to another experience, that led to a decision, it really was several things that were the wake-up calls in my life. And I thought, you know, some I listened to and some I didn't, but they kept coming. 
And the same wake-up call would come until I would listen to it. And it wasn't the big ones necessarily that made me really decide that this was it. It was when I looked back at all the little ones and how there was a knowing in it that I then sat with for a while and the knowing became a real intuition, a real knowing, and, and I was able to work myself into a place where I could act with confidence on it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, with reflecting on the major changes in your life over the past two years, as you mentioned, leaving your California family, friends, and life, and moving across country to reunite with family and starting all over again, how did the wake-up calls you speak about in your chapter aid you in discerning and making the decision to change the entire course of your life? Well, some of the wake-up calls I talk about in my book are, are big ones, like the, the wake-up call of, I cannot work in the emergency room anymore. I, I, I don't want mm-hmm. to do this anymore. And then finding a new career and going into that career. And because I went into that career, I now have a sustainable career doing infusion, chemotherapy, and psychosocial counseling for cancer patients that I will be able to sustain into my 60s. This is work that's deep to my heart, that I'm really effective at, and that I can sustain. I couldn't sustain my work in the emergency room, that physicality. It just, you know, it it wasn't going to happen. So it was a beautiful thing, the way that this art came, and that it's because I took the leap in California to go into oncology that I have found a niche here um, that I was able to slide right into, and they were like, oh, my gosh, we need, you know, this is exactly what we're looking for. And I'm going to be able to expand my role uh, in writing and speaking here um, at the University Health Center that I work at. Um, so that's been a beautiful thing. Uh, other wake-up calls um, were when I realized if I wanted to change my life, I was the only one that was going to be able to change it. The tough things of explaining things to my children and having them learn that they had to participate with me in their own destiny, you know, that they had to work, that they have to help me get them through school, that they have responsibilities. You know, we all want to provide for my, our kids. We want them uh, to to have a wonderful experience. I had to say no to a lot of things. Um, uh, the reality of of you know my marriage and and the arc of of, of coming out of of that marriage into um, single motherhood um, and journeying with my children through that and the realization that where do I want to be and where would the support be where would the healthiest place for me to be for me and thereby being able to sustain, sustain my children. And it was through these wake-up calls um, that I realized I needed to come home. And, and it was time. It was the most frightening thing Do you feel thing like everybody goes... Life. Do you feel like everyone goes through wake-up calls or that only some have wake-up calls? Oh, I think we all do. I think everyone does. It is whether or not we have the support the confidence, 
the tools uh, to take a look at them and, and to do what we feel we must do in order to answer them. It, the answer to my wake-up calls, I am the only person that could answer them. And the only way that it could be done is with my full participation. And it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But a lot of it's necessary. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. people out there who are hurting, who don't know how to get out of this place where they're at, that they know in some way they desperately want to get out of, but they have no idea how to do it and don't feel like they have the resources. They don't feel like they have the confidence, able to ask for the help that they need. They don't know how. So as you work with the patients, as you work with the patients that you work with now, you not only infuse with the chemotherapy that you're doing with them, but you also infuse into them ways of perhaps moving through their current situation or what is your position as you're working with the individuals? I have a tendency to ask open-ended questions and establish a trusting relationship. Kindness and compassion and softness and touch and looking somebody in the eye and saying, how are you, really? How are you? Can go a long way. Because all most people need is a little opening of a door that they want to walk through with someone. And we need safe space and we need safe people and we need to be able to have the hard conversation. And it's amazing when you allow people to be where they are and who they are and ask them open-ended questions that you realize that they have a true knowing about what they need and what they want. They just don't know how to do it and how to deal with that fear in a place where they can bring that fear forward and just have it held out. I'm not going to solve their problems for them, but I can help hold sacred space with their fear. And a lot of people and have looked outside themselves for, for support and especially if one is dealing with a life-threatening ailment such as cancer or loss, it can be really difficult when someone's been so entrained to look outside themselves. So all of a sudden being faced with something like cancer is a real eye-opener and a way to beautifully pivot one's life if, as you're mentioning, one has the courage to look deep inside for that shift. And to give yourself permission to feel what you want to feel or what you do feel and what Mm -hmm. to do with that and what you want to do about how you feel about this. There's such a loss of control in our lives. And a lot of times we give our control away. And sometimes we give our control away by trying to control more. So hold on to that that we know instead of letting all of that control because we have the control to let it go. Mm. 
So, so really as you're about, saying this, what tools? What's, what it's really about is what? Well, as I said, what it's really about is, is, is learning to let go and learning to detach, which have become these buzzwords, but it's really true. It's about letting go. It's about loving and living with detachment and not attaching on to something so much that that's the only way that you have to live or that you feel you can live, that you don't have any other choices because you're not giving yourself that choice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So the tools that I give to people uh, are multiple. And in my workshops and retreats, what I do is I provide a theme and then I provide tools for people to practice. I use a lot of poetry. It's amazing to me how many people have lost the art of simply sitting with a short poem and feeling how it feels um, to to have those words flow over you and, and what they mean. Um, sacred reading. Uh, one retreat I did on PTSD and trauma. I did a whole 45-minute lecture on silence. <laughs> I talked for 45 minutes on what silence is. And I simply sent people out to be silent. For 45 minutes, they just had to be silent. And they didn't have to if they didn't really want to. But I said, but just try and be silent. And really look around. No agenda, no nothing, just be silent. So there's very simple things that we can do. Other things are body work, yoga, meditation, um, many Tai Chi. Uh, I am a very active person, which is why I love the labyrinth, because it's a walking meditation. I think much better when I'm moving than when I'm sitting still. I have a very hard time sitting in meditation for 45 minutes. Um, So there's many, many different tools. The key to all of these tools is to give yourself permission to try something a little bit outside your comfort zone, a little bit outside your area of expertise. And if it feels right and good to you, then do it. And when it starts to dry up, then stop and try something else. Hmm. We label ourselves. I'm a meditator. I'm a contemplative. I'm a poet. I like poetry. I read these kind of self-help books. I read this author. I'm a proponent of this theologian. We, we, we keep ourselves, you know, limited, but we are keeping ourselves limited, right? So I think it's really important to expand your uh, perspective. And if something looks interesting, feels interesting, read it. Be with it. Try it. Go to a yoga class. If you hate it, that's really good information, isn't it? If you, so you're it's, sitting meditation and you hate it, that's really good information because there's walking meditation. There's different forms of yoga. So what I've heard you talk a lot about in, this, in our talk today is, is the importance of really being with oneself and listening deeply to what feels good instead of the should, woulds, and coulds. It's really being with with what practice or no practice someone wants to be in. 
Is that true from what I'm hearing? I, I think it. I think it is true. I, I think it's really helpful to not have an agenda, to have a little piece of our lives that isn't agendaized. And I really mm-hmm. encourage people to create a sacred space in their home where there is no agenda. It can be a chair with a little table and a candle and a book or whatever. It can be the same chair you watch Netflix in. But when you are in your non-agenda time, you put a little um, sacred object, a picture, you know, whatever is important to you, and have that be your non-agenda chair for a little while. So create a sacred space in your home that speaks to you, a little refuge for you to go to, and then go to it instead of putting in one more load of laundry. Go to it. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up our, our talk today, what message either do you want to impart to your readers through your chapter or as folks are listening now, what message do you hope to impart? That we're all okay. And that there are resources um, to help us in our journey. Um, There are wisdom people. There are tools to cope. There are opportunities for change. And if you feel that things aren't quite right, take some time, write it down, um, seek it out, pray on it, put it out in the universe, whatever your tradition is, and be clear that this doesn't, this, the way things are going in your life right now, you would like something to change. But without an agenda, without a timeline, begin the process of becoming aware of what those things are, and then perhaps making very, very small, subtle changes. Live the question. Be with the question, and you will live yourself into the answer. Which is is sometimes very difficult for people right now who are facing so much stress and strain with the current energy that is polarizing folks right and left and perhaps even polarizing oneself towards what is best for them. So to to be able to be in the space of the inquiry, the process of asking and also trusting and knowing that there is something so much bigger happening. And that can mm-hmm. be a difficult that can be difficult. Thank you so much for, for doing your work out in you're the welcome. world. And it's in important the end, in that you're paying it. Mm. Yeah. And in the end, I just want people to remember that only kindness matters. In the end, we can have all this strife, but what we can control is, what is, is our own self, our own attitude, and the way that we respond to it. And only kindness matters to ourselves and to others. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for that, and I hope you continue taking impeccable self-care as you request <laughs> for others to do that as well, and that you've settled into your new home back east. It sounds wonderful. It is, actually. 
it's been a rough transition, but it was the right thing to do. Yeah, sometimes those dark nights of the soul are our best teachers, and it's I I am of the belief that there are no accidents, and I'm also of the belief that harm life is too perfect to be fair, and mm-hmm. that we we are able to find our way somehow. So, thank you, yeah. thank you again for for all that you share, and for listeners out there, please join me next Tuesday from. 3 p.m. Um, to 4 p.m. Pacific time when my next guest will be Tony Gilbert, who is another nurse from the Nurse Sparks. And our talk will be on finding archetypal symbols in our imaginations, our dreams, our fantasies, and in the worlds of art, myth, legend, literature, and religion. Tony will describe the characteristics of the archetypes so that the listener can begin to see and use them in personal growth. If you're not able to join us next Tuesday or with any of the shows that are planned on Tuesday at 3 p.m., you can go to www.blogtalk forward slash authentic messengers and be able to listen in on the archive shows. So please, everyone, take good care of you. Be gentle with yourself. Practice being non-attached. Practice compassion, loving kindness, and hopefully we'll connect again. Thank you again, Maggie. It was wonderful to connect with you. It was great to be with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care now.